This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. For the second time back in the podcast, we have Dr. Jessica Stern. She's a PhD in psychology. She works at the NYU Langone Health Institute in New York. Today, we're talking about acute pain for a little bit. We're going to talk about chronic pain, how it's treated, various forms of non-medical, non-medicine or interventional treatments, um, how pain impacts impacts the individual, how pain impacts family of that individual. So Jessica, thank you very much for coming back today. Of course, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So there's a big difference between acute pain and chronic pain. Can you differentiate some of those psychological differences? Sure. So acute pain is pain that is occurs in response to an injury or some sort of event. So it can be something like surgery as well. And it's pain that lasts less than typically three months. And it's basically the body's response to that event that has occurred. So the injury or the surgery or whatever it might be as compared to chronic pain, which is more of a condition. So we think of acute pain as sort of this symptom and chronic pain is a condition that is lasting longer than three months and may have a known uh, source or might not have a known source. And so it's something that can persist for a longer period of time. Can you talk about how acute pain becomes chronic pain? Yeah. So there are a couple of different ways in which this can happen. Probably a big one is what people will oftentimes hear is when they experience chronic pain, oftentimes they're told things like, don't move so much or go on bed rest or take it easy or things like that. And all of those things are really important for the management of acute pain and the response to acute pain such that the body can recuperate from whatever it is that has happened. What ends up happening is that underactivity or underexertion can actually exacerbate pain and actually lead to potentially a chronic pain. And so we want to see that the body's moving. We want to see a reduction of uh, stiffness um, and things like that. So movement can actually be one of those ways in which acute pain can turn into chronic pain. Um, So that's one way. Um, There are other ways in which we think about approaches um, to our pain, thinking about the ways that pain changes our identity or our functioning or things like that. So things like mood, things like our thinking processes. And so if we're approaching pain, acute pain as this thing that's lasting and this thing that is something that we can't really target or overcome, then it's going to exacerbate our pain and become something that is much more chronic or something that's going to stick around for a lot longer. Um, And so even our psychological processes, there's the strong connection between the mind and the body. It can really sort of help that pain stick around and become something that's a little bit more pervasive. And so those are some ways in which we see the relationship between acute pain, you know, sort of manifesting longer term into chronic pain. Other things that can happen is recurrent re-injury of the site that led to the acute pain, if that kind of thing can happen. That re-injury can also lead to chronic pain if that site is constantly being torn up or is um, being re-injured. So that, that can be another thing as well. And so there are a couple different ways in which you want to break down what the acute pain is to get a sense of what is leading to it and what's also maintaining it and can lead to the chronic pain. So there's this fancy term called gate control theory. Can you discuss that and then give a real world practical 
example or thought as to why that's important to understand and know? So gate control theory is basically this concept that helps us understand what exacerbates pain or makes pain worse versus what can actually relieve pain or make pain better. So if you think about it, there's almost this sort of imaginary gate system that um, we consider or sort of conceptualize to be at the bottom of the spine. And basically, if you can think about it this way, there's this gate that leads sort of up the spine and connects the body to the brain. Um, And so the brain is what's holding all of those systems that can lead to the pain receptors, the pain signals that you're feeling in your body. So if you imagine that there's this gate that is allowing things to pass by or preventing things to pass by, that can actually impact those pain messages that are sort of traveling throughout the body and traveling from the body to the brain and back and forward. So in terms of gate control theory, the way that we think about it is that there are different types of gatekeepers that can either open the gate or close the gate. And some of those are physical or medically related. Um, So for instance, um, a lot of people will say that cold or rain makes their pain worse. So if you think about weather, for instance, as something that opens the gate and allows those pain signals to flow back and forth, think about it like traffic or something like that. Those pain signals are going to go back and forth. Um, So things like weather can be one of those things. Also other physical components like heat or cold or things like that, um, those can impact whether or not the gate is open or is closed. The cool thing is that there are other things aside from, you know, medical or physical components. In addition to things like I just mentioned, things that are physical and um, also medications, there are also things that are either psychological or are also related to the way we function in the world. So for instance, um, the way we're interacting with our pain and the relationship that we have with our pain can impact. What I mean by that is a lot of the times people will have negative thinking about their pain or the condition that they have. And so negative thinking can actually open the gate and lead to exacerbation of pain. So if I'm sitting here and I'm saying to myself, my pain's never going to get better. I'm not going to be able to be the same person that I was. I'm not going to be able to accomplish what I want to accomplish um, given the pain that I have. That can actually increase our attention and our focus on our pain and can actually make the experience much more um, difficult in terms of pain. Other things uh, can be, you know, things like activity or things like that, even from a psychological component. So people will oftentimes say that they experience their pain more when they're bored or when they're sad or when they're anxious or when they're angry, as compared to when people are happy or excited or focused on something, then they don't experience their pain so much. And that doesn't mean to say that pain is all in our minds and that we're imagining pain, but there are some things that can make our pain experience a little bit more difficult versus things that can make our pain a little bit less difficult. And so some of these are those components. It's an interesting thought that when people have pain, it's a real pain, but it's also influenced by your thoughts and perceptions and how you deal with with that pain. And often, because I'm a pain physician, I work in a pain clinic, I will suggest people see a pain psychologist and often they'll say, well, I'm here for a medical reason because I've had surgery and the, the surgery, while it looks good, I still have pain from it. So for example, someone's had spine surgery and I still have low back pain. Clearly there's a medical reason for the back pain. Why are you sending me to a psychologist? But there's a lot that psychology has to offer in addition to the medical interventions, medications, et cetera. So do you want to talk about some of the things you do from a psychology standpoint? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad that you say that because um, that's something I had been on the receiving end um, of a lot of people saying, I don't need to be here. The pain is real. Why are you sending to me a shrink? Um, and so there is this idea that we know that our minds and our bodies are very closely connected. It's all within one system, right? And so there's this connection. Um, so what happens oftentimes with pain is that just like immune systems. And so we know that our immune system is related to our psychological functioning. There's really cool research that shows that the way that we function psychologically can impact the way our immune system functions, very similarly to the pain system. So do you want to dive a little bit deeper just into that thought? as a small, and then we can come back to the pain, how, because I think it's an interesting topic, how the, the mind and the immune system are linked. So basically there, there's a whole lot of research on this in terms of the, you know, biochemistry and all kinds of things like that. Um, but there are a couple of key pieces. So first of all is this idea of stress and stress actually relates also back to the pain uh, piece that we were just talking about. Um, but what happens when we're, is when we're stressed is that there are changes in hormonal functioning things like cortisol, things like that, um, that can impact the way our body's functioning and can exacerbate any type of inflammation that's happening in our system, any type of uptick, you know, arousal, things like that, that can impact the way our body's functioning. And that can impact the way our immune system is functioning and also the way our pain system is functioning. They did a really cool study on medical students and they found that during sort of exam season and the height of a lot of the stress, um, students were doing really well in terms of their immune functioning. And then after the stress subsided, they crashed and a lot of the students became ill. And the reason for that is because they were sort of at this state of high performance that all of a sudden, or not so all of a sudden, sort of became exhaustion and the body just gave out. The stress and how someone's functioning in relation to that stress can really impact the way the body reacts to that stress. Um, And there has been research on cancer in terms of immune functioning and all kinds of different things like that. Also, cardiovascular health or heart health. And so, you know, people will oftentimes say, you know, physicians or other health practitioners will say, if you're feeling really stressed, keep an eye on your stress because that can impact your blood pressure, for instance. And so there's this relationship between the way that your body is reacting to your mind and your brain such that all of these systems can impact one another and uh, interweave into one big system. As an interesting thought, there is actually a, a condition called Cushing syndrome where your body will just make too much cortisol, which is one of the stress hormones. And by your body making too much cortisol, you actually gain a lot of weight, you have acne, and there, there are medical ways to fix this, but that's but you can mentally create a very similar situation where you're exactly like you're saying, you just have these high levels of stress all the time, which is different than just you're stressed for a test, for like say a test or a performance, you have peak performance, but then you pay the price because you crash afterwards. Absolutely. So what are those specific interventions? Offline, we discussed cognitive behavioral therapy. So cognitive behavioral therapy in general is sort of an umbrella type of therapy that focuses on the way that our thoughts, our behaviors, and our emotions react to one another and sort of play together. And this sort of umbrella type of therapy can be applied to depression or anxiety or or other types of mood conditions. However, it can also be used for things like heart health and specifically related to this talk is actually chronic pain. 
And so what you're doing in this treatment, and it's very effective, is you're taking a look at how someone functions in terms of their pain and getting a sense of the types of ways that they think about their pain and themselves in terms of their pain, so their relationship to their pain, as well as the behaviors that they have in relationship to their pain and getting a sense for what they're doing that's helping and what's maybe not being so helpful such that they can improve their functioning. And so the goal of the treatment is not so much to improve pain, but it's to improve functioning with pain. And back to your question a little while back about where psychology can come into this uh, pain management role is it's really about improving pain management. And if your pain severity improves as a result, that's awesome. But really the goal is to improve functioning. And so that's where this treatment plays in. So someone comes in and let's just say they have low back pain Mm -hmm. and they're a little bit annoyed that they're seeing you because they're thinking, or they tell you, why am I seeing a shrink? Because I have this low back pain. Mm -hmm. Practically speaking, what are you going to tell them and what mental exercises are you going to have them do with regard specifically to cognitive behavioral therapy? So what I would do first is I would get a sense of what kinds of thoughts are they having related to their pain. So someone might have this thought of, it's just too much for me to handle, or I have to give up on what I was doing. It's never going to get better. How come no one can help me? So sort of taking inventory of all of those pain-related thoughts is really the the first step. So getting a sense of what's happening for them on that level can be really important. So sort of just collecting inventory is really the first piece. Um, Because a lot of people don't realize it necessarily, but they have a lot of types of thoughts about the ways that they're functioning that can lead to lower mood or frustration or can impact their relationships or their work functioning. So getting a sense of what their thoughts are is really a very good place to start. What if I I just role played and I'll pretend to be, let's say I am a 50 year old gentleman. I've just had spine surgery. Well, I had spine surgery, say a year ago. I still have pain. I keep, I see my surgeon. He tells me, nope, the hardware looks good. Everything's totally fine. Then I get sent over to this pain clinic and the, I think that the pain doctor is an idiot because he makes me come to see you. And I'm irritated that I'm seeing you because my back hurts because I had surgery, but I still have pain. They'll pain down my legs. My weakness is better, but I still have this just low back pain. I used to work. I made a really good living and now I can't work. I'm not sleeping well because I have low back pain. I can't afford things. So my identity is different. My my wife is looking at me telling me, you know, the doctor says you're fine, but you're still in pain. Why don't you want to work? My friend, it's hard to do anything. So I'm seeing you. And I say, so I'm here and I have back pain. Why am I seeing you? Tell me a little bit about what your pain looks like and how it's impacting you. I have pain and it hurts my back and I can't sleep and I just need pain relief. Okay. I hear a little bit of frustration. It sounds like pain's really impacting you. I see a bunch of doctors. They keep telling me that everything's fine, but I can't do the things I used to do. I can I can walk a couple blocks, but that's it. I used to be able to to work a full-time, say, carpentry job, and now I can't. What other kinds of things are you not able to do that you used to be able to do? Um, it's hard to just pick up around the house. I used to be very active cleaning up the house. I physical relation, The physical relationship with my wife has suffered because, again, I have low back pain. So a lot of just the things that I used to enjoy in life are now gone. So loss of enjoyment is definitely changing. Your functioning mm-hmm. also in your household and in your relationship is changing as well. That's what I'm hearing. Yes. And then my, my stupid pain doctor is telling me I can't have any narcotics anymore because 
they're not safe and I have anxiety, but then I can't be on anti-anxiety medication, pain medication at the same time. So I'm in pain. No one's helping me. Tell me about your anxiety. Well, I have bills to pay. I can't pay my medical bills and I can't go on disability because it's not approved yet. So I, I have a loss of income and I can't really be active. Can't be active. Okay. So lots of things are piling up. You feel like you're not having the relief that you're looking for, which I imagine is pretty frustrating Mm -hmm. or disappointing. And it sounds like you feel stuck. Is that reasonable to say? I feel stuck and I feel like no one believes me because I tell people I have pain, but they look at me and they think I'm fine. It's hard for me to walk around the grocery store because again of the pain, but physically I look fine. No one can see the pain that I have. It's real. Absolutely. Pain is absolutely real. And I think you touch on an important point, which is that pain is this invisible struggle that can sometimes be hard for other people to understand. And it's very real for you, even if other people don't see it, which sometimes makes it even worse. Well, and then I saw my spine surgeon. He told me that the hardware looks good. So there's nothing for him to do. I tell him I have pain, but he says, but the hardware looks good. And my complaint is not about the hardware in my spine. It's about my pain. Okay. So tell me a little bit about this movement that you were talking about before, because I'm wondering what kinds of things that you're doing and are not doing in relationship to your pain. If I'm bending or twisting or lifting things, um, as I said before, I I did carpentry, so I had to lift a lot of very heavy things, and I was totally able to do that. But then I started getting weakness down my legs, and they told me I had this big bulging disc, and they had to surgically fix that in order for me to keep any sort of function. Otherwise, it would get worse. Now, my leg weakness has gotten better, but again, the pain is still there. Okay. Do you get to move at all or exercise or things like that? No. When I try to exercise, I'm used to just pushing really, really hard. And when I try to exercise, it just makes it worse. So I've just stopped doing everything. Okay. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And that's something I actually hear pretty often. So what will oftentimes happen for people, and you tell me if this is the case for you, and if it's not, that's okay, then we can readjust. But what a lot of people will say is that They are in this state of pain. They're not really moving a whole lot because it's really, really hard for them, which makes a lot of sense. And then maybe they have a good day and they start to move a lot and they start to catch up on all the things that they couldn't do and they overexert a little bit. And then the next day or the next three days or the next five days, they feel like they need to crash and then they can't move again. Has that ever happened to you? It happens all the time. Every time I have a good day, I try to get as much done as possible and then it burns me out for a few weeks. Yeah. So this is very, very common. And it makes sense because if you're having a good day, of course, you're going to want to do everything that you weren't able to do previously. What ends up happening in this cycle though, is that people find that they spike. They go from feeling really low to really high and then really low to really high. So uh, you're seeing those, those peaks and those drops pretty drastically. And so what I think could be helpful for us to do is to sort of decrease the space between the peaks and the drops such that you're a little bit more stable in your movement and your activity. And so that way you're not feeling like you have one really good day followed by three to five really bad days and then one really good day followed by three to five really bad days. And instead, it's sort of leveling out. The reason that this is helpful is it's good for your body in the sense that you're getting that movement sort of happening again. You're reducing stiffness. You're sort of getting your body reaccustomed to moving at a, a pace that feels a little bit more comfortable for you. But also, you're increasing your sense of ability and your confidence in your ability to do things. And you'll feel a little bit more masterful in the ability to do things that you weren't able to do most recently. Does that make any sense? So if I'm having a good day, 
you're telling me not to do as much? Yes, actually I am. So what we'll do is we will come up with a plan over the next couple of weeks, and this will be a slow, gradual process. And so if you can be patient with it, that would be wonderful. But if you have questions or concerns or frustrations, share those with me so that way I know. Um, But what we'll do is we will slowly start to build you up to a middle ground. So on the days where you're feeling good, we'll have you exert to a middle level, not a very high level, but a middle level. And then we'll keep you at that middle level. We'll find your sweet spot. And then slowly you'll be able to stay that middle level. And we'll kind of average out the really low and the really high to bring you to the middle. How am I doing this? Am I keeping a diary? Am I logging on my phone? How am I tracking this? Excellent question. So I will give you a set of worksheets and what we'll do is we'll come up with very specific goals for you in terms of movement. We'll define what movement looks like. So um, maybe it's walking, maybe it's lifting, maybe it's something else. We'll come up with a very specific plan so that way you know how quickly you should be pacing so that way you feel like you have a goal. What I always like to tell people is that you want to stop movement because you've reached a goal, not because you're in pain. So for instance, if you can walk 10 minutes before you start to feel pain, I want you to stop at minute seven. So that way you feel like, yes, I got this. I stopped because I reached a goal, not because I'm in pain. Um, And then slowly, if we want to increase the seven minutes up to 10 minutes, maybe we can do that ever so slightly. Um, But we will set very specific goals. We will monitor it. I'll give you worksheets. We'll keep track of it. And uh, it'll increase your sense of ability because you'll feel like you're doing this in a slow and paced manner. So I'm going to stop stop the role playing now. So I think that makes a lot of sense with um, the pain pacing where I'm just going to summarize. So what you're saying then is you, you get people to track what they can and can't do. And then they stop before they have this huge pain flare and then they're just shut down for a long time. And then over time, you slowly increase that by tracking. Exactly. Any other things that you do with the cognitive behavioral therapy? Yeah. So what I kind of just showed in this role play was like a mishmash of things that would typically Mm -hmm. happen for a 12-week period. Looking at the thoughts, like I mentioned, you're looking at the behaviors, you're doing a lot of pacing. Um, There's a walking program in um, the CBT for chronic pain, which basically helps people sort of increase their walking abilities. And then if there are other physical activities they want to do, they would do that too. Um, I typically like to infuse a values piece, which is basically where people will figure out what is something that is of value to them. And maybe it's having relationships, maybe it's their job, maybe it's a certain activity or charity or whatever it is, and find ways in which they can engage with that value in a way that feels comfortable for them. So sometimes people will say, I'm not able to do the things that I used to do because of my pain. So sometimes that me- sometimes what we would do is have that person try to get back to where they were slowly Or maybe it means finding a new way to work with that value and change their capacity. Um, So I once upon a time worked with someone who uh, was a very avid skier and he had a really bad injury and he could no longer ski in the same way that he used to. And he was very devastated about that. And then we got him to a place where he became a ski instructor. And that was really exciting for him because he was able to do, engage with that value in some way, shape, or form and change the relationship with it. And that was really exciting for him and felt very fulfilling for him. He was able to connect with his old self again. Um, so that can be another piece to that, that puzzle um, as well. What are some of the um, complementary alternative medicine things that you found helpful? So one of my favorites is yoga. 
yoga is probably one of those things that people are like, wait, what? No way am I moving if I have that much pain. Um, but yoga can actually be very, very helpful for chronic pain. And when I was previously at the VA, we had yoga for chronic back pain. And this is something that's pretty common. I mean, the reason that this is helpful is because if you have a qualified professional who's leading the yoga class, um, they can help you move in gentle, subtle ways that can re-engage your body and reduce a lot of that stiffness. That can be very, very helpful. And if it's yoga with a mindfulness component, that can help people learn how they're feeling in the moment, both physically and emotionally and psychologically, um, and sort of connect with peace that they have and also learn to recognize any of the distress that they have. Um, so yoga is a really wonderful technique. Acupuncture is something that um, some people will do as well. Um, different medical centers will use that as well for, for chronic pain um, and practices, not just medical centers. Let's see what else. Biofeedback is a really, really cool one. I'm not sure how much people know about biofeedback and neurofeedback. Should I talk about that? Yeah, yeah I think that would be good, worth talking about. Yeah. So biofeedback and neurofeedback is sort of a, a spinoff or a specific type of version of biofeedback is basically where you use different types of technology to learn about different processes that are happening in your body. So this can be done with different types of software and um, different types of hookups that you might have on your pulse points or things like that. And these different pieces of equipment can track your heart rate, can track um, your sweating, can track all kinds of different things that you have. And then there's also the neurofeedback, which is connecting with like pulse points and, you know, um, on the scalp and things like that. And basically what you do is you learn about the different processes that are happening in the body and how they connect to different processes that you're having internally. So there's versions that are good for things like depression and anxiety, and then there are things that are helpful for pain. So for instance, you learn where you have pain in your body. Maybe that's in your back. Maybe it's, that's at the base of your neck, whatever it might be. Finding tension in your body can be really helpful. And then learning where that tension and that pain is so that way you can very slowly start to regulate it. Um, and I oftentimes like to pair this with another technique called progressive muscle relaxation, which I absolutely love for pain management. It's very helpful. And this technique, basically what it does is you learn about where the pain is in various different muscle groups in your body. So you start typically at the top of your body, go down to different muscle groups and learn where the pain is and learn to exacerbate the, the pain by increasing tension and then release the pain by releasing tension. And that can be helpful because pain is exacerbated by tension in the body. And so learning where your tension points are can be very helpful. How are you doing that? So it's typically a guided practice. There are Mindfulness tracks that you can use on different apps, meditation apps, things like that. I, when I'm teaching it to patients of mine, I will have them close their eyes and I will walk them through it. Um, sometimes they'll record it and then they'll have an audio recording that they can use. But basically we start, I typically start on the head. I start with the eyes or the jaw. I have them close their eyes and then tense that muscle group for a couple of seconds, hold the tension and then release the tension. Um, and then I prompt them to think about the difference between the tense version of that muscle and the relaxed version of that muscle such that they can um, see the difference. And the reason this can be very helpful among many things is, first of all, the technique in and of itself can release tension, um, but also it teaches people how to recognize tension throughout their day. So for most of us, if we're, you know, I'm in New York City and we're oftentimes on subways or using all kinds of public transportation, we can be in closed spaces, crouching over, things like that. 
taking a couple of moments in your day to figure out how you're sitting, how that's impacting your, um, your posture and the tension that's in your body can be helpful. Many of us are sitting at computers, so learning how you're hunched over can be really helpful. So picking up on that tension can be helpful so that way you can learn to moderate it. Excellent. What are your thoughts on this? So sometimes when, when people have to go to physical therapy, I will tell them to ensure that they don't take their pain medication before they go to physical therapy because they are conditioning themselves to need that pain medication before they go to physical therapy. But I will tell them if you go to physical therapy and it's a little bit more of a strenuous session or your pain flare, then take it after if you need it. I think that's a great idea because then like you're saying, you're conditioning yourself. It basically, you're teaching yourself that you can't handle the pain, which is not so helpful. That's A. And B is you also, I think I'm not a physical therapist or a physician, but I imagine you can't quite get the same effects if you don't know the full range of what your body can do. And typically when you're in physical therapy, you're doing this in a safe and controlled manner, but you're being, you're learning how to how to push and how to expand and stretch and things like that. Um, and so being able to get a sense of what your range of pain is can be helpful as long as you're doing it with a, a person who is qualified. I, I totally agree with you. And that's, and that's why I give that recommendation because I think it's, it's a misperception or there's a misperception that people should be taking whatever pain, even if it's ibuprofen before they go to physical therapy because they're anticipating a stressful physical therapy session. Absolutely. And I actually, Outside of pain, I'll say similar things to people who are coming to me for treatment of trauma or anxiety or things like that. Sometimes people will say, like, I smoked marijuana before I came to this therapy session because I was really scared to talk about my trauma. And I'll say, okay, like, let's try and see what happens if you don't. So that way you can learn that actually you can handle your anxiety and that we'll control it together. Or maybe not control it, but experience it. So marijuana is kind of a hot topic right now that everyone's talking about. What are your thoughts on using marijuana for anxiety? I think we need a lot more research about it. I think Mm -hmm. the problem at this point is that there has been research on it, but the research on marijuana has looked at all kinds of different cannabinoids and there are many different chemical components to marijuana. And there hasn't been a whole lot of consistency on what type of marijuana is being used and the controlled Mm -hmm. nature of it. And so that I think for now we need more research on it and also to get a sense of what like dosing would look like and what kind of anxiety it's for. And so it might wind up being a helpful and safe technique to, to use later on. Um, we just don't know. However, I will say I am biased. I, I do a lot of treatment for anxiety in which people expose themselves to their anxiety. And what happens with marijuana is marijuana is a little bit of a band-aid and it sort of covers up the anxiety rather than necessarily treats it. And so we want, we want to get a little bit of a better sense of what the treatment is looking like and how it's impacting either the engagement with anxiety or the removal or avoidance from anxiety. So I think we need to know a little bit more. I would agree with you. And what are your thoughts on how, because it's a two-way street, how the, when someone is in pain, how that impacts their relationship to their family but it also impacts the way the family sees them. Yes, absolutely. So pain can actually become sort of a core feature of family dynamics, I would say. I think this is getting to what you're saying, is what can oftentimes happen is if someone has long-term chronic pain, and actually I don't work with children so much, um, I work with adults, but there's been also a lot of research on children with chronic medical conditions and things like that as well. But I will stick to the more adult piece is that sometimes if someone has 
chronic pain, that can change the way that they're functioning and the way that they're functioning can change the way that they, that they interact with the rest of their family system. And oftentimes people won't necessarily understand what their loved one is going through because they can't see the pain Mm -hmm. and getting a sense for what that pain is doing for them, how it's impacting the way they see themselves, all of that can be really important. And I think identity is a really big piece to this because a lot of times people will say, you know, I feel like a different person. I feel like I lost who I am. And that is so much grander than this just one piece of like, oh, pain is just a symptom or something that I'm Mm -hmm. experiencing right here in the moment. And so if other people in that family system don't really have an appreciation for that, that could be missing a really big piece to the puzzle. And so it can be really hard. People can find that it can be really hard for them to relate to their family or talk about it. I've had many people say, I don't even talk about my pain with my family because I feel like I'm burdening them. And then that actually isolates them even more and makes them feel even more siloed or lonely or lost or confused. And it can be really, really hard. I think the hard thing is a lot of, say, chronic pain issues, you can't see it. Like if someone has chronic knee pain, back pain, neck pain, et cetera. They're suffering, but it's not obvious versus their leg is missing or their arm is missing or they have this huge cast on. So the the normal sympathy response isn't quite there. It's not even there if someone says, hey, I have cancer. Everyone gets that and they understand it, that they have cancer. But it's different when you say I have pain, which is a very very serious condition Mm -hmm. because it has all these impacts, but it just, you don't get the sympathy. Yes. I think people don't really understand or don't really know how to relate to or understand pain. It's a little bit more amorphous than something like cancer. Mm-hmm. And I think the trouble is that, you know, also pain varies. So someone with pain, as we were talking about in the role play, might have a good day and then might have a bad day. And sometimes the people around them might not understand how could you have a, go from having a good day to having a bad day. And that feels like it delegitimizes the bad days because they had a good day. And so that fluctuation can also just be very confusing for people to understand too. So I think it's hard. I think it's hard because people don't see it. And so they don't necessarily understand it. They can't necessarily name it. And it's challenging. How often do people with chronic pain, if they're say seeing someone like you, how often do they actually get their entire families involved in the therapy? Fairly often. I'd say it depends on the person. It depends on what they want in terms of their relationship with their families. But I'd say fairly often. And even if they don't want to bring their family into sessions or things like that, I will oftentimes give them things that they can share with their partners or their children or whatever, adult children, to help them understand what they're going through. And at the very, very least, if someone's doing a treatment for chronic pain, let's say like CBT for chronic pain, Um, If they feel comfortable with it, I won't ever force anyone, but if they feel comfortable with it, I might say to them, you might want to give them a little bit of information about the kind of treatment that you're about to go through, and I can tell you what you can tell them, so that way they know what to expect, and they know the kind of work that you're doing, um, because it is a very active treatment, and oftentimes when people talk to their family members about the treatment, that can actually be a really wonderful discussion point for them to be able to open up and say, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm learning. This is what's changing. And so it can be a really good conduit to discussion. And having them talk about it to their family members can actually be very empowering if they kind of figure out the language that works best for them. Uh, or that, that makes a lot of sense. If you had to stereotype a type of person that will do well seeing a psychologist and what type of person will not do well seeing a psychologist, because everyone has a different psychological makeup and this is a psychologically minded th- 
therapy. So who does well and who doesn't do well? I think the biggest piece is someone who's open. Um, and the reason for that is that you want to be able to, as a patient, you want to be able to try new things and learn new perspectives. And whether or not you keep those things with you is totally up to you. Um, but just being open enough to trying new things can be very helpful. And if people are willing to give it a try, that can be very powerful. Um, and then conversely, I think people who think they have all the answers or are not quite ready for someone to share new perspectives might struggle a little bit more, might be a little bit more resistant to the treatment because they might feel really comfortable in their ways and might not want to try something new. So I think really openness is very, very key and is probably... I, I don't have specific data on this per se, but I would say anecdotally is probably one of the biggest predictors for successful change. And this is, I think, an interesting point I'm, I'm going to ask you about is that when people see a psychologist or someone in, in healthcare, they assume that all psychologists, say, have, they're a psychologist, so they should be able to treat everything, but different psychologists will specialize in different diseases or conditions, et cetera. So while you know a lot about acute and chronic pain, you mentioned before that childhood issues are not really your specialty. So how would someone go about researching or finding a psychologist that would work well for them for their given condition? So I would say there are a couple ways that you can do it. And unfortunately, I think this varies a lot regionally. So different parts of the country have different um, models and cultures and things like that. But you can either go to your primary care provider and talk to them about resources. And if they don't have an answer, then they might be able to direct you to someone who can. There are websites online, this is non-sponsored, but Psychology Today is an option. It requires a lot of sorting through um, in terms of finding someone who has the expertise that you need. There are ways that you can definitely connect to that. But I would say going to a place that has the specialty that you need, even if it's for not necessarily for a psychologist, can be helpful. So going to a pain management clinic, for instance, um, and saying, I need to speak with a psychologist or I'm interested in being referred to a pain psychologist, where can I go about that? They might be able to direct you to someone who can help you. And even finding places that don't necessarily have your insurance, saying to them, I, I don't think I can afford to come to you or you don't take my insurance, but might you be able to refer me to someone else who can? Um, so starting at a place of specialty might be able to uh, sort of help direct you to the right place. It can be hard, especially for some of these specialties that you want um, better competency in. But and, and I would suggest people being willing to travel to find someone that's really a good fit for them. Any any closing thoughts for people with acute or chronic pain? Closing thoughts for acute or chronic pain. Um, there are options out there. Um, I think that having pain can feel like this very dark, lonely place of stuckness. And so being open to recommendations from your healthcare providers can be really, really important. And just being willing to think about things from new perspectives can be really transformative and just not giving up because there are options out there. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for taking the time for this interview. If anyone has any questions, we'll have contact information in the show notes. That's great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a comment on the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast. Thanks.